Blog Talk Radio. Cusick Laws fighting for justice radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. They hating. Patrolling and trying to catch me Laws fighting for justice radio. Analyzes civil cases in the news. Trends in the law. And covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Laws fighting for justice. Features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Laws fighting for justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. We really appreciate our listeners. We have a great show for you today. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody to check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And our very informative Facebook page, same name. Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice with Robert, Mark, and myself each week analyzes the hottest civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers legal current events. Today we're analyzing some hot new legal news stories, and we will then have on our expert after that, and then we will do Reed's rant. Thanks again, and if you're just joining us, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice. Now, the first story of the week, Robert Ryan is going to talk to us uh, about Mylan being hit with a class action lawsuit over the EpiPen price increase. Robert, I think this is great because I think that guy should not be able to gouge people. But, of course, people will – the counter argument is you could charge whatever you want for what you sell. What do you think? Well, well, let's talk about that, Reed. Thanks again. Everybody for listening in. Um, like Reed said, please check out our website at kuziklaw.com for further details about the good services of Kuzik Law. Yes, Myelin Pharmaceuticals. Every now and then a story comes down that just makes the entire country seem to collectively shake its head. And what's this story about and what's at the bottom of it? Well, we have this device called an EpiPen. And it's a, it's a device that allows for the rapid injection of a drug called epinephrine into somebody who is suffering a severe allergic reaction, such as to a food allergy, a child who might accidentally ingest peanuts, for example, or somebody who's allergic to bee stings and gets stung while they're mowing their backyard. Myelin Pharmaceuticals acquired the right to this device in 2007. At that time, a two-pack of the EpiPen device was selling for $94. In the ensuing years, nine years, Myelin has increased the price by 550%, such that now a two-pack of the EpiPen goes for $608. Now, why is this significant? Well, One of the reasons it's significant is that the primary or one of the main primary beneficiaries of this device is children. Uh, We've all been probably following the stories about the tremendous increase in the number of food allergies suffered by children. There's some estimates that the number suffering from food allergies of minors in this country has increased fivefold in the past 10 years. And many people simply can't afford $608 for a device that could potentially save the life of their child if they accidentally ingested uh, peanuts or some other food that they were uh, allergic to. Um, Moreover, Mylan, aside from jacking up the price in this egregious fashion, has also taken steps to make sure that other competitors can't sell the device as well. They have uh, entered into deals with some competitors that would delay 
generic versions of the EmpiPen from making, making it onto the market. And they have also twice petitioned the Food and Drug Administration to delay com, uh, compilation and certification of a generic equivalent that could provide price, price competition for their product. And now they're suffering the hit public relations-wise and also legally. Uh, there's a class action suit in Ohio that's filed by um, the whole the class action suit, just for our listeners, is when instead of everybody who's affected by a particular uh, problem filing their own separate lawsuits, one person can file a lawsuit on behalf of all the people who suffer from that same problem. So this class action lawsuit in Ohio is being filed on behalf of all of the consumers who would purchase EpiPens and have to pay this inflated price. Um, there's another legal problem for Mylan in New York, where the New York Attorney General is investigating Mylan for antitrust violations in the marketing of this EpiPen to schools. Apparently what Mylan was doing was providing a certain number of them free so that the schools would have on hand in case a child had an allergic reaction. But then once the school requir- requested more of them, they were required to buy some certain minimum number at the full price, which many schools could not do, thus preventing them from having having this very needed and necessary device on hand in order to make sure that schools are safe for children. So I don't know how this is all going to turn out. A lot of people are very upset about this. Um, Other people note that some of the uh, solutions for this would be to allow people to buy these devices from overseas, which is presently uh, prohibited in the United States. This device costs about a third of the of the cost in Canada, for example. But current regulations uh, prohibit people from contacting online or out-of-the-country pharmacies for the importation of these devices into the United States. So how this is all going to wind up is anybody's guess, but I think that these lawsuits can help put pressure on myelin and also help put pressure and bring a focus to drug companies and some really predatory pricing practices that they employ to see that their drug prices are very high, even though some people then cannot afford these very life-saving devices or drugs that they need. I think one of the problems, Robert, is that, you know, if somebody had to pay $600 for a pen that's going to last until it's needed, that's one thing. Uh, but these EpiPens, they only last for about a year. So these parents would have to spend, uh, you know, 1200 to $1,800 to have two or three of these things uh, on hand every single year. And that's one of the problems. What's the basis of this? What, what, what is the basis of the class action lawsuit? What are they claiming? The well, did wrong? Ohio has a consumer protection law. That, that prohibits anti, anti-competitive practices and also prohibits price gouging. And so I think the allegation in the Ohio lawsuit is that, is that Mylan, having cornered the market on this device, is using its power as the sole purveyor of this product to unfairly and unreasonably jack up the price in an astronomical fashion. I mean, after all, the device has not been improved or changed or or advanced in any way since Mylan acquired the rights to sell this device nine years ago. And despite that, we have this 500% or five-fold increase in the price. And that's what what the consumers in Ohio are complaining about. And that's what the New York Attorney General is taking a look at right now. Very good. That sounds. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that that turns out. I'd hate to be Mylan in front of a jury. Mark Leonardo, Fox settled with Gretchen Carlson over the uh, sex harassment claims. What? Tell us about this this uh, this story. 
Guys, before coming to Kuzik Law, I used to handle employment cases for about 30 years. I never had a case as big as, big as this one, but, you know, actually I don't think no one has. Gretchen Carlson is a former Miss Minnesota and was crowned Miss America back in 1989. And after working at CBS for a few years, she eventually joined Fox News in 2005 and was an anchor reporter on several of their shows over the years until June of this year when Roger Ailes, the Fox News CEO, fired her. She then filed a lawsuit against Ailes for sexual harassment in the Superior Court in New Jersey. Now, it's only two months since she filed the lawsuit, and she settled her case uh, in the last couple of days for $20 million. Wow. And I can tell you, that's such a quick settlement in a case of this magnitude, it's, it's highly unusual. But what's really unusual here is that the settlement was not kept confidential. In fact, yesterday, Fox issued a public apology to Gretchen, which is even more rare in these types of cases. You know, in, in the 30 years that I handled these kinds of cases, I had one sexual harasser actually say he did it, he was wrong, and he apologized. But everyone else, they just cover up. But yesterday, Fox came out and said, quote, we sincerely regret and apologize for the fact that Gretchen was not treated with the respect and dignity that she and all of our colleagues deserve. We know Gretchen will be successful in whatever endeavor she chooses in the future. You know, now, in this, in this lawsuit, she accused Ailes of propositioning her for sex and threatening to ruin her career if she refused. And other women claimed that he insisted on sexual favors in order to either get or keep a job. This is what we refer to in the law as quid pro quo sexual harassment. So, you know, her filing of the lawsuit was kind of like the Bill Cosby situation where her suit unleashed a wave of accusations from other women who encountered Ailes over his multiple decades uh, in the television industry and being a Republican politician. And um, so more than 20 women came out of the woodwork and contacted Carlson's attorneys to say they had also been victims of Ailes. And a similar number spoke to investigators that were hired by Fox to look into Gretchen's accusations. Another interesting point here is that Gretchen, she did not sue Fox News or 21st Century Fox directly. She Instead, she only sued Ailes personally. Uh, nonetheless, though, Fox News is being held responsible and uh, is probably paying the lion's share of the settlement. It's not been reported whether Ailes is actually paying anything out of his pocket. Um, now, when the suit was first filed, Ailes, uh, he maintained that, maintained that Gretchen uh, was fired because of poor ratings. And he just summarily dismissed her claims as well as those of the other 20 women. But with all the accusations mounting, including a claim uh, that was possibly going to be made by their superstar, Megyn Kelly, uh, Ailes was finally ousted from Fox. Um, and he was one of the founders of this, of this, uh, this network. Let me now, ask you, now, Mark. Sure. Let me ask you a question, Mark. Um, it was widely reported that Roger Ailes received a severance package of over $40 million when his employment was severed with Fox News. And now right. we have, just a few months later, Fox News itself paying $20 million to settle these allegations, with a which Ailes himself so vigorously denied right before his departure. Is there some contradiction in that? <laughs> it sure seems like it. And he, when he um, was bought out, they gave him a $40 million severance package. He has a non-compete where he can't work for any of the rival news networks for uh, some period of time. We don't know the period of time. But he's also going to be a consultant for the next few years for Fox. So that's kind of interesting. But, you know, Fox makes uh, a profit of over a billion dollars each year. 
So giving him $40 million and giving uh, Gretchen $20 million, that's, 60, that's, less, that's way less than 1% of their net profit. So um, we're not feeling too sorry for Mr. Ailes here. But, you know, I think, I think with the, the magnitude of this settlement, plus there was another assistant that worked for Ailes. She sued as well, and she got millions of dollars. So I think we're going to see a big rash of lawsuits across the country for sexual harassment because of this. I can imagine. That's a that's an awfully high amount. I have a feeling that she, this is unusual. She may have had some some information or some extra leverage that that must have played a factor here. But we got to move on. Let's go to the next story. This is a, a very interesting story, kind of sad. Uh, before we go on to that, I just want to remind everybody you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. You can get more information about these and other stories at KuzikLaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. Robert, tell us about this story, the Aurora Massacre survivors from that, uh, the, the shooting in the, in the movie theater. They've been hit with a financial insult to their injuries. The court ordered them to pay $700,000 four years after this deadly shooting. Tell us about the story. Well, you know, this is a very sad story in some respects, but it's also very instructive about how the U.S. system of justice works. A bit of background here. I'm sure all of our listeners remember that horrible night back in July of 2012 when James Holmes, who many think is mentally unbalanced, stormed into a midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises at the Cinemark Multiplex Theater in Aurora, Colorado. Um, Armed with a shotgun, a pistol, and an automatic weapon, he killed 12 people and injured 70 more, and it was just a horrible, awful mass shooting bloodbath. Um, Mr. Holmes himself was convicted of mass murder, received a life sentence from which he will never never, uh, get out from. Um, However, the families of the loved ones and the injured ones were left to pick up the pieces of their lives after this. And what 28 of them did uh, last year was they filed a lawsuit against Cinemark, the operator of the theater. And their allegation was that Cinemark was responsible for what Mr. Holmes had done that terrible evening because of a lack of security and a lack of security cameras and a lack of certain emergency procedures that these 28 victims who survived the shooting or were the family members of people who were killed in the shooting claimed um, would have prevented what Mr. Holmes did. Um, Now, earlier this year, sad to say, a jury uh, of six people in Aurora, Colorado, came back with the finding that Cinemark was not legally liable. In the jury's view, and this was what was argued by Cinemark, it didn't matter what Cinemark could have done by way of security or security measures or cameras or anything, that even if all of what the plaintiffs were saying should have been done had been done, that Mr. Holmes still would have been able to complete his bloody rampage. Um, So they came back with a finding in favor of Cinemark. Now here's where it gets interesting, and this is something many people might not realize, that under our system of civil justice, if you bring a lawsuit against somebody and you lose, you typically don't have to pay the other person's attorney's fees, meaning they have to pay their lawyers, you have to pay yours, regardless of what happens. However, the losing party usually does have to pay the costs of the winning party, which is something that not many people realize. You know, there's a lot of talk about tort reform in this country and about shouldn't we have to pay the, the, the winner's attorney's fees? And here you have a situation where these people lost, and they don't have to pay attorney's fees, but they have to pay almost three-quarters of a million dollars for the costs 
that Cinemark says it incurred in defending the lawsuit. Now, how could that be? Well, Cinemark employed a lot of experts, experts in security, experts in injuries, experts in long-term care, experts in the operation of movie theaters. Over half a million dollars, they said. So that when the jury came back and said to the survivors that sad news that no, they were not going to be able to collect damages for Cinemark, that only Mr. Holmes was responsible, those losing plaintiffs, aside from the insult they thought of having it be determined that Cinemark had no liability, they now faced this staggering financial loss of almost three-quarters of a million dollars to compensate Cinemark for the cost that they incurred, not paying their attorneys, but just in defending the lawsuit. And that's something that everybody needs to keep in mind about our civil justice system. The courthouse door is open to everybody, and typically, if you lose, the other party has to pay their own attorneys, and you have to pay your attorneys. But you always have to be mindful of the fact that if you lose, you could face severe financial consequences as a result of having to pay the costs incurred by the winning party. And that's just what has happened here, and it's a very sad result, I'm sure, for those victims and their families in Colorado. What a slap of the face to you'd have to pay all that in addition to the loss of their loved ones. Well, you know, the judge did strongly encourage them to settle the case before it went to the jury. He did not think that it was going very well for those plaintiffs and made really strong overtures to say, listen, we know it's not very much that Cinemark is offering, but, you know, if you don't accept this and they prevail, you're going to have to be these costs, and it could be high. And unfortunately, that's exactly what has happened. What a nightmare for those families. Okay, we need to move on to our expert segment, and I'll remind you, we're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice. Um, and now on to Ask the Expert with featured guest Jane Velez-Mitchell. Hi. Hi, Jane. How are you? All right. Congratulations on your show. Okay, let me introduce you. This is Jane Velez-Mitchell, and her website is www.janeunchained.com. Jane is the former host of her own national TV show on HLN called Issues with Jane Velez-Mitchell. Ms. Mitchell is the writer of four Genesis Award, the winner, rather, of four Genesis Awards from the Humane Society of the United States. Jane's memoir, I Want, My Journey from Addiction and Overconsumption to a Simpler, Honest Life, was a New York Times bestseller. And in August 2013, Jane released her fourth book, Exposed, The Secret Life of Jody Arias, which debuted as a number five New York Times bestseller. Ms. Mitchell, welcome to the Thank you for having me. Uh, what do you feel were the instances where media coverage had a direct impact on the outcome of one of the more fo- high-profile legal cases you covered? Oh, my gosh. Where has it not had an impact? Um, if you look, for example, at the Michael Jackson child molestation trial, I don't know if you remember that one back 2004, 2005, but uh, the nation was completely transfixed. You know, there was a case where um, really the entire world was saying that Michael Jackson was going to be convicted. In fact, the DA, Thompson Eden, was uh, very arrogant and, you know, held news conferences telling the reporters, come and spend your money here, and almost like, you know, a circus atmosphere. And it was even more bizarre than a circus atmosphere. You had fans from around the world. You had disputes between reporters, disputes between fans and reporters. Um, it was a it was a madhouse, and I was in the middle of it. And you know, all the experts were saying he was going down. He was going down, and he was going to be convicted. 
And, you know, generally there are contrarian indicators, just like the stock market. When people say, hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go straight up, sometimes that's a mark of concern and, you know, a cause to sell. So, of course, he was acquitted on all counts. And um, it was a stunning, stunning verdict. But I, I wasn't as shocked as some people because I didn't buy into the whole group think that, oh, because everybody, uh, and of course the DA is going to say that it's a slam dunk, but because all the powers that be and all the best, the so-called best and the brightest said it was a slam dunk for the prosecution, that means it is. Uh-uh. And, and that happens over and over again. The Casey Anthony case, another one, where everybody said, oh, she's going to be convicted, and the defense did a terrible job. And uh, ridiculed the defense. Jose Baez was uh, the attorney on that case. And, and all the so-called experts, the, the bright minds saying, you know, he did a terrible job and, and that the prosecution did such a great job. And you know what? She was acquitted. Uh, you never can tell. Absolutely. Um, we're having a little bit of difficult time hearing you, if you could speak a little bit louder. Uh, oh, sure. And then, not a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, of all the trials that you covered in your career, and I know there were a lot of them, which one did you find the most interesting or the most uh, fulfilling? I'd have to go back to, have to, go back to the uh, Michael Jackson trial because yeah. it was so absolutely fascinating. And um, you had a man who was, you know, just world globally famous and incredibly charismatic. You know, I spent every day in the courtroom looking at Michael Jackson, and even the reporters who hated him, and there were reporters who detested him, uh, it was very emotional. I mean, when we were covering the trial, there were people who couldn't go to dinner together, reporters, because they, they had such different views of the case. But even the reporters who hated him, when he smiled at them, he, they would go gaga, and they'd go, oh, Michael Jackson smiled at me. Oh, they would totally forget that they hated him and despised him. And uh, he just had a charisma, you know, with these superstars. It's a reason why certain people become superstars. And um, they have a palpable charisma that is different than other people. And he would come in, you know, frail and, and uh, you know, very, very thin to the courtroom, sometimes before anybody else, because he would go in and sit at the defendant's table and he would ask the bailiff for candy. <laughs> the candy. And You'd see him sitting there, and I'd say, you know, there is something very different about this person. He's just maybe it's the fact that the whole world's watching him and that he's famous, and we know he's famous, or maybe it's just that he's famous because he's different. Uh, but but that was such a fascinating case because, like some other cases, maybe the John Brady Ramsey case, you'll never really know the truth. The fact is that we don't know what happened behind closed doors. We don't know if Michael Jackson is a child molester, um, or maybe he had problems, but. The particular case that D.A. Tom Snedden brought was a very weak case. Um, just like we really won't know for, you know, whatever really happened to Jaminet. So um, I think those are the cases that really haunt me is where there's no, no, no closure. There's no definitive answer at the end of the day. Amazing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very frustrating. I think most people feel that uh, Michael Jackson was guilty um, but just couldn't be proven guilty. Um, and same thing with uh, O.J. That was another big case where uh, most of the – I think most people felt that he was guilty even though he was acquitted. But we have – this is our system of justice. It has to be beyond reasonable doubt. Well, let me draw a distinction between those two cases. In, in the O.J. Simpson case, I think everybody, um, virtually everybody agrees that, that he did it. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> um, 
in the Michael Jackson case, there were there were those who felt that he might have a problem, but that the particular family that the DA chose to bring their case was uh, a very, very bad choice. This family had been known to shake down um, and approach other celebrities. Um, this family, you know, was wined and dined at the Jackson State. And they had opportunities to so-called escape, and they didn't. Um, th- there were many, many problems with the case. And so while uh, I think a lot of people feel that Michael Jackson had troubles and he was troubled and may have had an issue with children, I mean, there are people who have described Neverland as you know, uh, flypaper for, 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 for children and uh, sort of a, a molester's uh, dream. Uh, but if you look at the details of that particular case, there were those who felt that uh, the family that was chosen, uh, especially because they were caught on tape, uh, basically praising Michael Jackson to the hilt and saying that anybody who accused him of being a child molester had a sick, dirty mind. I don't know if you remember that famous video uh, where the actual family that accused Michael Jackson was – on tape, saying that he was not a molester and that anybody who suggested such had a dirty mind. I don't remember that. Well, what happened was, remember the infamous raid on Neverland with uh, you know, the whole motorcade of, of cops going in there? Mm-hmm. After that, um, as the investigator proceeded, uh, and, and you remember that there was that Martin Bashir documentary that occurred where um, – Martin Bashir, the, the whole reason why the case started was that Martin Bashir did a, a really creepy interview with Michael Jackson where the little boy who ended up accusing him and being at the centerpiece of this trial was leaning his head on Michael Jackson's shoulder and they were talking about sleepovers and the whole world went ballistic and then the charges came and then D.A. Tom Snedden raided um, the Neverland Ranch. After that... It emerged that during that documentary that was filmed, Michael Jackson had his own cameras going. And eventually that became another documentary called the story, something like the story they don't want you to see or something like that. Anyway, um, as a result of that, that Michael Jackson's videographer actually did their, his own interview with the family that was accusing Michael Jackson. And that tape was discovered in the course of the investigation. And um, then that tape revealed them saying all these wonderful things about Michael Jackson. And so that's when the DA had to reorganize his whole case. And that's when he came up with this, I think it was something like 18-count conspiracy. So essentially he had to accuse Michael Jackson of molesting the child after the documentary aired. It, It became very convoluted, all because they stumbled upon this tape that had been made that they didn't know about when they filed the t- when they when they raided Neverland. It's amazing. That's that's amazing. What, what, who would you say was the most cunning criminal that you ever covered? Oh my gosh, I'd have to say cunning in a bad way on yeah. Jody Arias. Jody Arias, and that was my last book, uh, Exposed the Secret Life of Jody Arias. She is the the most conniving, diabolical person I think I've ever studied. Uh, I mean, obviously, aside from somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer, or, you know, there are some cases that just have no comparison. But Jody Arias, in her um, plotting, I think shows that the cover-up is always worse than the crime, because actually the things she did after the crime were what got her nailed. Um, she 
took the the photographs um, that she had taken of that basically she killed Travis Alexander and stabbed him 27 times, slit his throat ear to ear. And because they had been having raunchy sex earlier that day and they'd taken photographs of each other and um, the camera was there, uh, it caught inadvertent photos of the murder in progress, which is rare. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, yeah. A camera dropped and showed the killer's leg uh, dragging Travis's body down the hall. And she tried to rework that as part of her defense, claiming that he went into a rage when she, dro- when, when she dropped his camera. But I don't think anybody believes that. But she did a lot of conniving things. She took that camera in an attempt to destroy it, threw it in the washing machine, and turned on the washing machine. Uh, too right. clever by half. If she had just taken it out into the desert and buried it, nobody would have ever seen it. But right. the police were able to extract the camera and extract the SIM card and study it, and they extracted all the photos. So she did herself in. She also did crazy things like after she murdered Travis Alexander, she called him and left a voicemail for him and said, hey, a friend of mine and I are going to see Othello uh, at a Shakespeare festival. Want to come? Well, I mean, she it's, sound, it's sounds like she, It sounds like she was pretty cunning. Uh, we yeah. are running out of time, so Ms. Valdez Mitchell, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, to learn more about Ms. Valdez Mitchell, please visit her website, www.janeunchained.com. Thanks again, Ms. Mitchell. And that will wrap up this week's show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. To find more information about this and other stories, visit our website, kuziklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. Thank you. Thank you, Reed. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.